Hello, and welcome to episode 64 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Bavonis. Joining me today is journalist Stan Grant, a guest who needs no introduction to our Australian audience. But for those of you overseas, he's the host of ABC Australia's China Tonight and Chair of Australian Indigenous Belonging at Charles Sturt University. Stan Grant, how are you? I'm very well. It's nice to see you again, Salvatore. We've shared um, a stage on multiple occasions, including <laughs> the last US election coverage, which seemed to go on forever. And, uh, and you helped assist us through that. So it's nice to be reunited. Uh, well, well, thank you very much. Now it's my chance to grill <laughs> you. And look, I want to start. I, I, we were supposed to talk today about your recent Hachef book uh, on identity. Um, I hopefully will have you back at some point to discuss the book specifically. I am going to put a link to the book in the comments. Yeah. We'll talk about it a little bit. But yeah, we'll weave some of these things through that. But given the dramatic events this week in Afghanistan and your own deep experience in the region, I would like to start by talking about Afghanistan. Now, you've reported in the past, I mean, ABC viewers know you as Australia's ABC, but uh, you've reported in the past from Abu Dhabi for CNN. You were an anchor in Doha for Al Jazeera English. So you have a lot of experience in region. And I'm curious to know, based on your contacts in the region, your experience in the region, how is the Taliban takeover being viewed across the Arab and the Muslim worlds? You know, I would think with a lot less surprise um, than we've seen initially in the West. You know, I, I had extensive experience reporting in-country, on the ground. I was part of, you know, worked for CNN for a very long time and, you know, was part of our ongoing role in coverage of the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan. And I spent a lot of time as well in Pakistan. And, of course, when you're in that region, Salvatore, that border known as the Durand line between Afghanistan and Pakistan essentially does not exist. You know, people move back and forth. And the Taliban, very firmly established in that area, it's traditionally a Pashtun ethnic area, and that's what gave birth to the Taliban. Of course, the Taliban emerged out of the madrasas, the Islamic schools in Pakistan in the 1980s to seize control of Afghanistan in the 1990s. So that area is really just open and very much occupied by the Taliban. I reported extensively from there. I had the opportunity to, to, you know, to, to see up close Taliban-held areas, um, often in all their horror, um, and, and to meet and interview on several occasions Taliban leaders and senior figures in the Taliban. And the, the thing is this, when you live there and when you report there, um, they're ever-present. You know, the Taliban is not just some organisation that sort of come into being in more recent times, the roots of it go even deeper than the birth of the Taliban itself. Um, the long history of Afghanistan, the, even in most recent times, going back to the Soviet invasion in 1979 and how that drew Mujahideen fighters from the broader Middle East to go there, Al-Qaeda took root there. All of these things feed into what we're seeing playing out now. So there is no complacency, there is no surprise there is uh, around the return of the Taliban, there is probably entirely predictable. While in the West, there was a narrative that the US had invaded with allies, had, had uh, ousted the Taliban, um, uh, you know, eliminated the threat of Al-Qaeda in the region, eventually got Osama bin Laden. The Taliban didn't go away. Al-Qaeda didn't go away. It is a resourceful, resilient 
organization. It has strong roots in the regional areas. Uh, it has built um, a broad base. It has recovered from setbacks. It has dealt with the deaths of senior leaders. And here it is now with the American impending withdrawal taking the country again. So anyone who was paying attention would know that it, 20 years did not go away. It maintained in some areas a shadow government. It was potent. It was agile and waiting for this moment. Now, you've traveled in Afghanistan uh, multiple times, as I understand it. Most, for most of us, that's unimaginable. We, we've only seen Afghanistan on television. It, it's been a, a, you know, a reality show that has unfolded in front of our eyes the last 20 years. Uh, how would you describe life you know, at the street level, you know, life in Afghanistan yeah. before this week? I mean, was, were the Taliban always there or is this something like a shock that's now there occurring? Was, there was always a Taliban presence. Um, and the further you got out of some of the major uh, cities, the Taliban presence was even stronger. Part of the Taliban strategy has to be to often blend it into local populations as well. So it's maintained quite a strong presence, particularly in those regional areas. In places such as Islamabad in, in Pakistan, um, it was not uncommon to see Taliban fighters, uh, to know, and I, in fact, I've interviewed uh, Taliban leaders in Islamabad and in the regions of Islamabad. Remember that the, the Taliban had taken control of the Swat Valley just a couple of hours drive from Islamabad, and I reported that battle. And in Afghanistan, you know, I would go to local Islamic schools, madrasas, where you would see Taliban clerics teaching young children. I interviewed uh, boys who'd been kidnapped by the Taliban and then rescued, uh, who were being programmed, trained to become suicide bombers. So that, that presence was always there. And, and yet as well, Salvatore, you know, life goes on as normal, even in the middle of a war zone. You know, places like Iraq, um, Af Afghanistan, life goes on. People have jobs. Uh, people go to school. People, you know, eat out. People watch films. People, you know, listen to music. Um, life finds its own rhythm. And I remember when I was in Afghanistan, um, you know, going to little, you know, little, little hole in the wall restaurants by the side of the road and eating, eating in chicken restaurants and browsing through music stores um, because, of course, the, uh, the Taliban had outlawed music and music stores when it took power, so they reopened again after the Taliban was ousted. So there can be a veneer of some sort of normality to people's lives, uh, a, a daily reality of people's lives that we experience in our own way, but they're experiencing it, of course, in a country under enormous stress and with the ever-present danger. You, you mentioned the origins of the Taliban in the madrasas, and most of us now have learned that the word Taliban simply <laughs> means student. Mm. Uh, yet when we think of Taliban fighters in Afghanistan, we usually, in our, our mental image, is of mm. you know, illiterate people in the country. Yeah, not at all. So that, that's what I want to ask you about, is who are the Taliban and who are the people who've taken over Afghanistan are they the same people? Essentially, they are the same people. They're drawn from the same, of course, senior figures in the Taliban, such as Mullah Omar, who, was, who gave, gave birth to the Taliban, um, 
who was the supreme leader of the Taliban, uh, is gone. But um, a lot of the senior figures are the same figures who were there. And you have to remember when the Taliban was in power, it was a government. Uh, there are engineers who are members of the Taliban. There are doctors and there are lawyers and there are accountants. People have to run taxation policy. You have to build roads. You have to run an education system. Uh, you have to run a hospital system. Uh, you have to make sure the garbage is collected. I mean, the mundane things of government don't go away because the Taliban is in power. So, you know, I've interviewed members of the Taliban, ed educated uh, in the United States, in the UK, uh, fluent in multiple languages, um, who in any other part of life would be working as bureaucrats in whatever government, whatever country they were in. They were in Afghanistan and they're a member of that of that Taliban government. And then, of course, you have the fighters, um, the people on the front line, the Taliban army. Um, and when we look at how the Taliban first came to power, this was at the forefront. You know, it emerged um, after the, 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 uh, the, the power vacuum that arose with the Soviet Red Army pullout of Afghanistan in 1989. But it had been building, building in those Islamic schools, particularly in Pakistan, uh, and, and building their power base to be able to seize Afghanistan. One of the things as well that we often overlook or people are not familiar with is that when the Taliban took power, Afghanistan was in the midst of a civil war, parts of the country controlled by rival warlords. And initially, the Taliban was seen uh, by many as being saviors. Um, particularly, and this may seem a strange thing to say, given what we've seen with the repression and oppression of women, um, but particularly in some parts by women who saw law and order being brought, stability being brought. Um, they were often brutalised by warlords. There was a, a sense of lawlessness in those, in those communities. And the Taliban was originally hailed as being saviors. Well, of course, we saw the Taliban impose its own extreme version of Sharia, women unable to go outside without a, a male escort, um, girls not allowed to attend school after a certain age, men told to grow their beards to a certain length, uh, under threat of death, public floggings, public executions. But initially, when the Taliban took power, yes, by, by many, they were seen as being bringing um, stability and order to a lawless country. I mean, listening to you describe the Taliban, it, it almost brings to mind for me that the idea that the Taliban might be thought of as, strangely, the local intelligentsia or the organic intellectuals of Afghanistan. I, I mean, if I were to compare what's happening in Afghanistan to the French Revolution or the Russian yeah. Revolution, both of them very bloody, um, that's not maybe a, a positive uh, comparison, but it maybe makes it a little less foreign yeah, well, th think about groups like al-Qaeda. I mean, Ayman al-Zawahri, one of the senior figures, lieutenant of Osama bin Laden, is a doctor. Um, the people who carried out the 9-11 attacks in the United States were all university educated, many of them engineers. Um, so there is, there is a, an element of the intelligentsia, the elite, Osama bin Laden himself, university educated, um, part of an elite family, Mullah Omar educated um, leader of the Taliban. One of the, the things that I like to 
relate this to, and there are a lot of similarities, is to the rise of Mao's communist revolutionaries in China. In fact, you can see the influence of Mao and the way that Mao had developed a doctrine of guerrilla warfare and the people's war. You can see a lot of that influencing groups like the Taliban. Indeed, Islamic strategists, military strategists have drawn on Mao's teachings as a way of sort of uh, informing and, and influencing people in how you carry out these long-term guerrilla warfare. And when you look at, at Mao um, and, and the communist revolutionaries, um, they fought a long battle against the Japanese. They fought a long battle against the US-backed nationalists of Chiang Kai-shek. Just like the Taliban, they were underestimated. And ultimately, just like the Taliban, they seized control of the country. And a lot of the figures in, in Mao's revolution uh, were educated. Many of them educated abroad. Many had emerged out of Paris. They'd gone to study uh, in Paris. Deng Xiaoping had studied in Paris. Zhou Enlai, uh, Mao's uh, premier. So there are similarities to that. Um, it's wrong to think about these groups as just being cowboys, that these are just, you know, warriors coming down from the mountains. You don't survive 20 years if that's all you are. And now they're back in power. They will assume the responsibilities of government. And that includes all of the things that we know governments have to be able to provide and run. It's very interesting to hear you bring in the China comparison, because I know your own expertise in recent mm. years has been focused on China. Now, we have a question about that connection from our coming in from our viewership. And I do want to say some hellos to our viewers, Alex, Anthony, Anonymous, AL, Chiquita. Uh, thank you for watching today. We really appreciate it. Please do get your questions in via the chat window and I'll feed them through to Stan. Uh, we did have a question from Anonymous about the connections between China and the Taliban, asking, is China really the only country that can stabilize the situation in Afghanistan? It's a, it's a good question. And it does play into a, a much bigger and emerging power struggle that we're seeing in the world. And that is that, you know, 20 years ago, when the US invaded Afghanistan, after, of course, the attacks on the US at 9-11, um, inspired by, carried out by Al-Qaeda operating out of Afghanistan, the world looked very different. And the US was still seen as the sole superpower. Well, now it has a superpower rival in China. And some people are talking even now about the prospect of, of conflict between China and the United States. So the geopolitical landscape has changed. China's capacity to spread its influence throughout the region has changed. We know that through the Belt and Road Initiative of investment and infrastructure, China is expanding its influence into Central Asia. And that of course includes Afghanistan. There are economic interests for China in the region as well. And strategically, you need to look, I think, to the relationship between China and Pakistan. China doesn't have allies as such. Um, North Korea, you could call a client state, but Pakistan has a long, long uh, alliance, a relationship with China. If you go to Islamabad and you walk down the streets, there are streets named after Chinese revolutionary figures, the Zhou Enlai Boulevard. Um, you know, so they, those links go very, very deep. Pakistan has long been 
the enabler and supporter of the Taliban. Yes, it has a tiger by the tail. On the one hand, it's supporting them. On the other hand, it's dealing with the blowback of insurgency within its own borders. But it has played this deadly game as a way of building what is termed a, a, a layer of strategic depth in the ongoing, as Pakistan would see it, existential uh, conflict with India. And of course, India and China have their own conflicts. They've been to war. Just last year, Chinese and Indian troops clashed along their borders. So there is another dimension to this as well. The China-Pakistan relationship vis-a-vis uh, vis the India, India's presence in the region and stopping India getting a foothold in Afghanistan, particularly along that Afghanistan-Pakistan border, which Pakistan would see as a threat to it. So China is, is absolutely crucial. Its relationship to Pakistan is crucial. Its relationship to India, its interests in the region, its economic interests. And then when you take it a step further, how this plays into, if I can use this phrase, it's often overused about that region, the great game, the great game that we see between China and the United States that is still to play out. Our viewers, of course, are a, a highly uh, educated lot and uh, full of information for us. We actually have Anthony feeding us through some Pew Research Center statistics. Now, <laughs> I haven't looked at the survey myself, uh, but Anthony's a pretty reliable source on this. He says the Pew Research Center uh, survey shows 99% of Afghans supporting Sharia law, 61% support applying it even to non-Muslims, 81% you know, support, uh, supporting corporal punishment, 78% uh, support religious judges ruling on secular issues like property. Um, it, is this ultimately uh, a popular regime in Afghanistan? Evidence that I've seen, and it's very difficult to be able to get proper opinion polling surveys done there, is that the Taliban itself doesn't necessarily enjoy that broad popular support. And when you talk about, um, but that's not to say it doesn't have enormous support in areas where it has a stronghold. And one of the things that the Taliban has been able to do is to move beyond its traditional ethnic Pashtun base uh, and make alliances with other tribal groups and other ethnic groups. But we know one of the things that, that the Taliban has sought to do in the past when it was in power um, is, is the oppression of, of the other, you know, Tajiks and Uzbeks and Hazaras, the other ethnic minorities um, in Afghanistan. So, but when you talk about things such as Sharia, well, we know that Sharia is, again, something that's open to a much broader interpretation. There are much more doctrinaire and strict interpretations of what Sharia would be, and then there are others. You know, we Islam is not some monolith. Um, as someone once said, what is this Islam? I've never met him. Um, it, it, it is Islam in Indonesia, Islam in Saudi Arabia, Islam in Somalia, Islam in Afghanistan uh, are going to be different. The Taliban interpretation, and we can only go on what the Taliban uh, imposed last time it was in power, was a much more doctrinaire, much stricter interpretation of Sharia, the banning of music. Um, as I said before, uh, all men ordered to have beards at a certain length, the imposition of restrictions on the lives of women, public executions, public floggings. I, I reported out of the Swat Valley in, in Pakistan where the Taliban had taken control and 
they would hang the headless corpses of people who would not submit from the town square. In fact, the town square, when I was reporting there, became known as Slaughter Square. Um, this was a brutal imposition of that rule. Now, people in Afghanistan um, may favour those courts, favour Sharia. It doesn't necessarily follow they also favour the Taliban interpretation of that or imposition of that. And it is a, like many other countries, it is a diverse country, ethnically diverse. There are differences uh, among people. And the Taliban itself, there are differences within the Taliban itself. I, I think there is a, a tendency sometimes when you see countries like Afghanistan through a prism of, of war and, and conflict is to, stop, is to not see the other layers of sophistication and to sort of infantilise a lot of those countries. These are people. These are intelligent people capable of, of making their decisions um, with their own aspirations for their country that may not align with Western liberal democratic ideas, but maybe not also uh, align with the hard line approach of the Taliban. Um, what we see, of course, with Taliban rule is you don't see a voice of opposition. You don't see the layers of dissent or the other interpretations. You just see a doctrinaire, severe interpretation of Sharia as the Taliban would see it. I was interested to hear you say that, you know, quote, Islam is not a monolith, and also to talk about the different ethnic groups in Afghanistan. They may have different cultural practices that are different you know, forms of uh, Islamic practice. E even if they all agree that they want Sharia law, they may not agree on what Sharia law is. And ultimately, this seems to come down to questions of identity. Now, now yeah. our original purpose for this session was to discuss your 2019 uh, or 2020 Hatchet book uh, on identity, which came out, I think, December 2020. Mm. Uh, that, of course, was about Australian identity and your own struggle with you know, defining what Australian identity is. How might the lessons from that book mm. apply to the situation in Afghanistan? In all the reporting that I did, and, and I speak to this as someone who comes from, you know, an Indigenous background in Australia, where questions of identity, I think, are particularly uh, politicised and particularly fraught, and there's a history to that that we don't have time to, to go into. But one of the things that uh, I found wherever I reported from conflict zones in the world is at the heart of so many of these conflicts is a question of identity. Uh, identity that is often, um, to use a, a phrase that uh, Amartya Sen, the Indian economist and philosopher, had once used, solitarist identities, identities that are exclusive, identities that are reductive. So you become, you see the world through a very narrow prism. It may be that your race or your ethnicity or your religion, uh, your class, uh, your nation, um, is the only way that you see the world. There is an exclusivity. It becomes tribalized and us and them. When you connect that to uh, history and often a very fraught history of conflict and oppression, you can see how identity can become so weaponized. Now we've seen this more broadly with Islamist movements um, who have weaponized the idea of an Islamic identity an identity that is in opposition to the West, an identity that is, is an identity of vengeance 
against what they see as the oppression of the West, of occupation of Muslim lands, um, even still fighting the Crusades. Uh, that is the language that is often used and is very potent. One of the things that we've seen with groups like Islamic State is that they've been able to draw recruits from far and wide, Muslims living in Western countries, and attract them to this idea of a militant Islamic identity um, that can so easily be weaponized. And we see this everywhere. Um, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche talked about resentiment, you know, the idea that there is, there is this eternal wound, the wound that cannot and will not heal. It is the source of all grievance. And those sort of solar, solitarist identities are often identities of resentiment. China um, talks endlessly about the 100 years of humiliation. Look what foreign, foreign armies, look what foreign countries did to us. And there is a sense of vengeance in the return of China. And the Taliban is a deeply rooted identity group as well, Pashtun identity, the sense that the Pashtuns are the people who should rule Afghanistan, the sense that the Pashtuns have been locked out of power, exploited by others, um, a history of imperialism and conquest that feeds into this sense that you are gaining vengeance for past historical wrongs. Wherever I've been in the world, Salvatore, that sense of identity that becomes so easily weaponized is at the root of so much conflict. I'm interested to hear you talk about Pashtun identity versus Afghan identity mm. or Muslim identity, since, of course, Pashtuns are uh, spread across the Afghan-Pakistan border. Mm -hmm. that, the P in Pakistan stands for Pashtun. Yes. Uh, originally. Now, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was the yeah. independent leader of Pakistan, saw Pakistan as the center of you know, the new caliphate, right? The, 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 yeah. the Pakistan would become the center of the Muslim world. That didn't pan out. Uh, but to what extent does you know, Pakistan's pan Islamism, Afghanistan's pan Islamism, uh, the Pashtun identity that straddles mm. Afghanistan and Pakistan, how are these all competing for control in Kabul? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, you know, take someone like Jinnah, for instance, a, a great example, someone who is, in fact, much more, you know, cosmopolitan, um, who was much less of a doctrinaire uh, Islamic, but as you say, did see Pakistan as being this, this place, and, and it was the first of its kind of a home for Muslims, um, if you like. The, it, it's, it's fascinating when, when you look at... Um, at at the Taliban, because yes, it does emerge out of that ethnic pastoral identity, but it has also sought to then attach itself to a greater cause and identity as well, and that is a, a pan-Islamist identity. They are followers of the Wahhabi, Diobandi um, uh, teachings of, of Islam, as are groups like Al-Qaeda uh, and, and Islamic State. Um, while it is different, to organisations like Al-Qaeda and, and, and ISIS, who are transnational organisations. It's been much more focused on Afghanistan itself. There's an element of ethno-religious nationalism to them, um, but it, it is also part of what it sees as that broader struggle, uh, and that is to reconstitute the caliphate um, to, to, you know, the, the, the Ummah, the, the community of faith. But identity and Pashtun identity sits at the source of, of, of that uh, Taliban st 
strategic identity that it has used to gain power in the country. It, it has been a weapon as part of its strategic approach to gaining power. But then, of course, it plays into those bigger questions as well of Islam, Islam in the world, and the battle for the soul of Islam. Because remember, who have been the greatest victims over the past 20 years of the, the so-called war on terror? It has been Muslims. They are the people who have died at the hands uh, of other Muslims themselves and Muslims fighting for the soul of, of their own faith. So there, you're right. There are multiple layers to this. Stan, we're out of time, but if I can indulge on you to, to carve an extra five minutes out of yeah. your calendar for us. We do have a, a question from Peter that is, I think, a, a fantastic final question to end this session on. Uh, he asks, isn't identity in the end a matter of choice? And he points out that in the Australian census, we allow people to choose uh, up to two ethnic eye groups that uh, people identify with. And there's no reason people can't have multiple mm -hmm. identities. Um, is, is, the, is the best future for Afghanistan one where people, instead of having to have just one identity, can comfortably assimilate multiple identities it's in one person? It's, it's an ideal, isn't it? And, uh, and I think, you know, you're talking there about um, the sort of liberal cosmopolitan approach to the world. I mean, one of the things of liberalism and one of the things that attracts me to liberalism is the idea that we are not defined uh, narrowly by our race, our faith, our, our class. Um, I have multiple layers of my own identity. Yes, you know, very proudly attached to my Indigenous heritage and roots, but I, 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 there are many, many other layers to my identity, and it's often very contextualised. It's one of the um, it's, it's one of the, the great things of liberalism that it creates space for those more cosmopolitan identities um, to exist. But we know that that's not the world we live in, Salvatore. The world that I have seen is that identity is often at the forefront. It is so easily weaponized and increasingly so in the West. Increasingly, we are seeing the battle of identity, the identity wars, um, identity politics that drives so much of this, uh, that cut across class and race and religious lines. Who is a citizen? Who belongs to a nation? These things have been politicized and weaponized as well. Have you seen an increase of populism? It, it is an easy button to push. It is so seductive, so tempting, and it makes sense of the world in a very simplistic way, but ultimately a very dangerous way. Um, and, and, of course, you know, you look at countries like Afghanistan, China, wherever we may be, there are countries that are not the West. And I think it's difficult for us sometimes to understand, sitting from our Western vantage point, that countries have a right not to be the West, um, that have a right to be who they are. Uh, but how do you do that without that becoming toxic and weaponized? And that's one of the struggles of our age, frankly. Stan Grant, or perhaps I should say Professor Stan Grant, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It goes far too quickly. So thank you to everyone for those fantastic questions. And it's always good spending time with you, Salvatore. It's all, I always feel smarter.
<laughs> That's very generous of you. Thank you to our generous producer, Nico Malian, as well, to our executive producer, Max Auk Weaver. Uh, the director of the CIS is Tom Switzer. Next week, we will be talking to the Honorable Bridget McKenzie, Senator for Victoria. I'm Salvatore Babonis, and I look forward to seeing you, or at least you seeing us next week on On Liberty. <laughs>